0: Chapter forty three of the Fortunes of Glencore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortunes of Glencore by Charles James Lever. Chapter forty three Doings in Downing Street the dull old precincts of downing street were more than usually astir hackney-coaches and cabs at an early hour private chariots somewhat later went to and fro along the dreary pavement and two cabinet messengers with splash caliches arrived in hot haste from dover frequent too were the messages from the house a leading oppositionist was then thundering away against the government inveighing against the treacherous character of their foreign policy and indignantly calling on them for certain dispatches to their late envoy at naples at every cheer which greeted him from his party a fresh missive would be dispatched from the treasury benches and the whisper at first cautiously muttered grew louder and louder why does not upton come down so intricate has been the web of our petty entanglements so complex the threads of those small intrigues by which we have earned our sobriquet of the perfidy albion that it is difficult at this time of day to recall the exact question whose solution in the words of the orator of the debate placed us either at the head of europe or consigned us to the fatal mediocrity of a third-rate power the prophecy whichever way read gives us as unhappily no clue to the matter in hand and we are only left to conjecture that it was an intervention in spain or something about the poles as it is usual in such cases the matter insignificant enough in itself was converted into a serious attack on the government and all the strength of the opposition was arrayed to give power and consistency to the assault as is equally usual the cabinet was totally unprepared for defence either they had altogether undervalued the subject or they trusted to the secrecy with which they had conducted it whichever of these be the right explanation each minister could only say to his colleague it never came before me upton knows all about it and where is upton why does he not come down were again and again reiterated While a shower of messages and even mandates invoked his presence. The last of these was a peremptory note for no less a person than the Premier himself, written in three very significant words thus, Come or go, and given to a trusty whip, the Honourable Gerald Neville, to deliver. Armed with this not very conciliatory document, the well-practised tactician drew up to the door of the Foreign Office and demanded to see the Secretary of State give him this card and this note sir said he to the well-dressed and very placid young gentleman who acted as his private secretary sir horace is very poorly sir he is at this moment in a mineral bath but as the matter you say is pressing he will see you will you pass this way mr neville followed his guide through an infinity of passages and at length reached a large folding door opening one side of which he was ushered into a spacious apartment but so thoroughly impregnated with a thick and offensive vapour that he could barely perceive through the mist the bath in which upton lay reclined and the figure of a man whose look and attitude bespoke the doctor beside him ah my dear fellow sighed upton extending two dripping fingers in salutation you have come in at the death this is the last of it no no don't say that cried the other encouragingly have you had any sudden seizure what's the nature of it he said he looking round to the doctor calls it arachnoidal trismus a thing he says that they have all of them ignored for many a day though charlemagne died of it ah doctor and he addressed his question to him in german a growled volley of gutturals ensued and upton went on yes charlemagne melancthon had it but it lingered for years it is the peculiar affection of great intellectual natures overtaxed and overworked whether there was that in the manner of the sick man that inspired hope or something in the aspect of the doctor that suggested distrust or a mixture of the two together but certainly neville rapidly rallied from the fears which had beset him on entering and in a voice of a more cheery tone said come come sir horace you'll throw off this as you have done other such attacks you have never been wanting either to your friends or yourself when the hour of emergency called we are in a moment of such difficulty now and you alone can rescue us how cruel of the duke to write me that sighed upton as he held up the piece of paper from which the water had obliterated all trace of the words it was so inconsiderate eh neville i am not aware of the terms he employed said the other this was the very admission that upton sought to obtain and in a far more cheery voice he said if i was capable of the effort if dr geierstad thought it safe for me to venture i could set all this to write, These people are all talking without book, Neville. The ever-recurring blunder of an opposition when they address themselves to a foreign question, they go upon a newspaper paragraph, or the equally incorrect private communication from a friend. Men in office alone can attain to truth, exact truth, about the questions of foreign policy. The debate is taking a serious turn, however, interposed Neville. They reiterate very bold assertions which none of our people are in a position to contradict. Their confidence is evidently increasing with a show of confusion in our ranks. Something must be done to meet them, and that quickly." "'Well, I suppose I must go,' sighed Upton, and as he held out his wrist to have his pulse felt, he addressed a few words to the doctor he calls it a life period neville he says that he won't answer for the consequences the doctor muttered on he adds that the trismus may be thus converted to by trismus just imagine by trismus this was a stretch of fancy clear and away beyond neville's apprehension and he began to feel certain misgivings about pushing a request so full of danger but from this he was in a measure relieved by the tone in which upton now addressed his valet with directions as to the dress he intended to wear, the loose pelisse with the astrakhan, Giuseppe, and the vest of cramoisy velvet, and if you will, just glance at the newspaper Neville in the next room. I'll come to you immediately. The newspapers of the morning after this interview afford us the speediest mode of completing the incidents, and concluding sentences of a leading article will be enough to place before our readers what ensued it was at this moment and amidst the most enthusiastic cheers of the treasury bench that sir horace upton entered the house leaning on the arm of mr neville he slowly passed up and took his accustomed place the traces of severe illness in his features and the great debility which his gestures displayed gave an unusual interest to a scene already almost dramatic in its character for a moment the great chief of opposition was obliged to pause in his assault and to let this flood-tide of sympathy pass on. And when at length he did resume, it was plain to see how much the tone of his invective had been tempered by a respect for the actual feeling of the house. The necessity for this act of deference, added to the consciousness that he was in the presence of the man whose acts he so strenuously denounced, were too much for the nerves of the orator, and he came to an abrupt conclusion whose confused and uncertain sentences scarcely warranted the cheers with which his friends rallied him. Sir Horace rose at once to reply. His voice was at first so inarticulate that we could not but catch the burden of what he said, a request that the house would accord him all the indulgence which his state of debility and suffering called for. If the first few sentences he uttered imparted a painful significance to the entreaty, it very soon became apparent that he had no occasion to bespeak such an indulgence in a voice that gained strength and fulness as he proceeded he entered upon what might be called a narrative of the following policy of the administration clearly showing that their course was guided by certain great principles which dictated a line of action firm and undeviating that the measures of the government however modified by passing events in europe had been uniformly consistent, based upon the faith of treaties, but ever mindful of the growing requirements of the age. Through a narrative of singular complexity he guided himself with consummate skill, and though detailing events which occupied every region of the globe, neither confusion nor inconsistency ever marred the recital, and names and places and dates were quoted by him without any artificial aid to memory. There was in the polished air and calm, dispassionate delivery of the speaker something which seemed to charm the ears of those who for four hours before had been so mercilessly assailed by all the vituperation and insolence of a party animosity. It was, so to say, a period of relief and repose, to which even antagonists were not insensible. No man ever understood the advantage of his gifts in this way better than Upton nor ever was there one who could convert the powers which fascinated society into a means of controlling a popular assembly with a greater assurance of success he was a man of a strictly logical mind a close and acute thinker he was of a highly imaginative temperament rich in all the resources of poetic fancy he was thoroughly well read and gifted with a ready memory but above all these transcendently above them all He was a man of the world, and no one, either in Parliament or out of it, knew so well when it was wrong to say the right thing. But let us resume our quotation. For more than three hours did the House listen with breathless attention to a narrative which in no parliamentary experience has been surpassed for the lucid clearness of its details, the unbroken flow of its relation. The orator, up to this time, had strictly devoted himself to explanation he now proceeded to what might be called reply if the house was charmed and instructed before it was now positively astonished and electrified by the overwhelming force of the speaker's raillery and invective not satisfied with showing the evil consequences that must ensue from any adoption of the measures recommended by the opposition he proceeded to exhibit the insufficiency of views always based upon false information we have been taunted, said he, with the charge of fermenting discords in foreign lands. We have been arraigned as disturbers of the world peace, and called the firebrands of Europe. We are exhibited as parading the continent with a more than quixotic ardour, since we seek less the redress of wrong than the opportunity to display our own powers of interference, that quality which the learned gentleman has significantly stigmatised as a spirit of meddling impertinence." offensive to the whole world of civilization. Let me tell him, sir, that the very debate of this night has elicited, and from himself too, the very outrages he has the temerity to ascribe to us. His has been the indiscriminate ardour, his this unjudging rashness, his this meddling impertinence—I am but quoting, not inventing a phrase—by which, without accurate, without indeed any information, he has ventured to charge the government, With what no administration would be guilty of a cool and deliberate violation of the national law of europe he has told you sir that in our eagerness to distinguish ourselves as universal redressers of injury we have ferreted out i take his own polished expression in the case of an obscure boy in an obscure corner of italy converted a commonplace and very vulgar incident into a tale of interest and by a series of artful devices and insinuations based upon this narrative a grave and insulting charge upon one of the oldest of our allies he has alleged that throughout the whole of these proceedings we had not the shadow of pretence for our interference that the acts imputed occurred in a land over which we had no control and in the person of an individual in whom we had no interest that this sebastiano greppi this image boy for so with a courteous pleasantry he has called him was a neapolitan subject the affiliated envoy of i know not what number of secret societies that his sculptural pretensions were but pretext to conceal his real avocations the agency of a bloodthirsty faction that his crime was no less than an act of high treason and that the austrian gentleness and mercy were never more conspicuously illustrated than in the commutation of a death sentence to one of perpetual imprisonment what a rude task is mine when i must say that for even one of these assertions there is not the slightest foundation in fact greppi's offence was not a crime against the state as little was it committed within the limits of the austrian territory he is not the envoy or even a member of any revolutionary club he never i am speaking with knowledge sir he never mingled in the schemes of plotting politicians as far removed as he from sympathy with such men As in the genius of great artists, he is elevated above the humble path to which the learned gentleman's raillery would sentence him. For the character of an image-vendor, the learned gentleman must look nearer home, and lastly this youth is an Englishman, and born of a race and a blood that need feel no shame in comparison with any I see around me." To the loud cry of name-name which now arose, Sir Horace replied, if I do not announce the name at this moment, it is because there are circumstances in the history of the youth to which publicity would give irreparable pain. These are details which I have no right to bring under discussion, and which must inevitably thus become matters of town-talk. To any gentleman of the opposite side who may desire to verify the assertions I have made to the House, I would, under pledge of secrecy, reveal the name. I would do more. I would permit him to confide it to a select number of his friends, equally pledged with himself. This is surely enough. We have no occasion to continue our quotation farther, and we take up our history as Sir Horace, overwhelmed by the warmest praises and congratulations, drove off from the house to his home. Amid all the excitement and enthusiasm which this brilliant success produced amongst the ministerialists, There was a kind of dread lest the overtaxed powers of the orator should pay the heavy penalty of such an effort they had all heard how he came from a sick chamber they had all seen him trembling faint and almost voiceless as he stole up to his place and they began to fear lest they had in the hot zeal of party imperilled the ablest chief in their ranks what a relief to these agonies it had been could they have seen upton as he once more gained the solitude of his chamber Where, divested of all the restraints of an audience, he walked leisurely up and down, smoking his cigar, and occasionally smiling pleasantly as some conceit crossed his mind. Had there been anyone to mark him there, it is more likely that he would have regarded him as a man revelling in the afterthought of a great success, one who, having come gloriously through the combat, was triumphantly recalling to his memory every incident of the fight, how little had they understood sir horace upton who would have read him in this wise that daring and soaring nature rarely dallied in the past even the present was scarcely full enough for the craving of a spirit that cried ever forward what might be made of that night's success how best should it be turned to account these were the thoughts which beset him and many were the devices which his subtlety hit on to this end There was not a goal his ambition could point to but which became associated with some deteriorating ingredient he was tired of the continent he hated england he shuddered at the colonies india perhaps said he hesitatingly india perhaps might do to continue as he was to remain in office as having reached the topmost round of the ladder would have been insupportable indeed and yet how without longer service at his post Could any man claim a higher reward? End of chapter 43